crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we are chatting with Lori Norrington, who is one of the smartest business people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. She's the board member at, well here at HubSpot, at Eventbrite, Big Commerce, Colgate-Palmolive, as well as many others over the years. Before that, she was at GE, eBay, and Intuit. She's got a wealth of knowledge, and we're going to talk all things leadership, problem solving, and business strategy today on The Growth Show, live and in person in our Cambridge studio. Let's dive into today's episode. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. Uh, so welcome, Lori. Thanks, Kit. Yeah, yeah. Great Thanks. to be here. Thanks for chatting with us today. So you have, I think, some of the most interesting perspective in the world of technology and business you've worked at a lot of interesting companies, uh, first of which you were at GE for a long period of time, mm-hmm. about 20 years. And I think GE historically has always been this place that people looked up to mm-hmm. as a company that has stood the test of time, continued to innovate, and kind of reinvent itself mm-hmm. along the way. Um, how does that actually work? Like you, you were in there. Like, What did you learn in your period of time there? 20 years is a long time to be someplace. You know, it is a long time. In fact, it seems like several lifetimes, you know, um, (laughs) from most people's perspective at this point. You know, one of the things I think that's really unique about GE is it was a big company that took huge risks. Um, And, you know, I think we tend to look back on it and say, oh, boy, you know, the 90s were just the golden age at Mm -hmm. GE. And, And frankly, it was a great decade. What I think we forget is the 10 years before that, mm-hmm. right? When Welsh came in in 81 and said, oh my gosh, we have, the world is changing so rapidly. Our portfolio really nicely fit the 60s and 70s. It's not going to work for the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. How do we remake this? And he took massive, massive bets, right? He, he exited the television business. He entered you know, the financial services business. Um, and he reinvested in parts of the portfolio, like turbines, for example, were a business that people thought, well, gee, why would we ever invest in those? But when you looked at the population growth in the 90s and the whole emergence of the electrical grid and the beginnings of the smart grid, the guy looks like a genius now. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things is Edison used to say it's 99% uh, Uh, 1% aspiration, 99% perspiration, and I think that it was a lot of heavy lifting, Mm -hmm. but also being very strategic about where the world was going. And I think that's what made, one of the things that made Jack a great CEO, because he spent a lot of time and was very impatient about how quickly the business had to change. And when you're dealing with a business that's that big, you have to push it very hard into the future. And I think he did a great job of that. And, and I think you know, that the 90s and the early 2000s you know, were a great example of, of the legacy that he left. Yeah, and so I think there are a couple things there. There's risk and taking risk, which I want to talk about. But something for me and having the pleasure to get to know you is that I think you're exceptionally good at being objective and looking at a situation and just saying like, hey, this is what's going on here. And this is what's this is the problem. 
before we even decide whether we're going to take a risk or take an action. What is your advice to people on actually doing that? I think there are a lot of folks listening that that's a really hard thing to do. They they get distracted by things that they want to do by their own ego saying, oh, we don't have a problem here. How, how do you focus and really have an objective view of a situation of a company that you're really in the middle of? Yeah, I was I was lucky to be you know trained at GE because mm-hmm. in 20 years, I probably had 13 roles. Mm-hmm. And if I wow. was going to succeed in those roles, I had to come in and be very clinical about my diagnosis of what it was going to take to win. Uh, I've always tried to not uh, think that my babies are too beautiful, right? That, <laughs> right. that uh, That's always something that my, uh, my mother used to tell me is like, look, you know, you can fall in love with a problem. Don't fall in love with a business because you won't change it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to remain objective. And I think, you know, you have to, something I had to practice early on. Mm-hmm. I had to go spend time, for example, with my teams early on, we'd go take a half day and just have a white day and say, wait a minute, what's really, what are we getting too wedded to? What are we not changing fast enough? What could we do different and better? Because we we always bring a set of assumptions to something, Mm -hmm. right? And how do we dispel the assumptions and our beliefs so that we can recreate the future. And I think that's something that you just have to practice consciously. And I think you have to, in my opinion, work for a company that wants to develop people, that's willing Mm -hmm. to invest and take risks on people. Because the more you get outside of your comfort zone in different jobs, I mean, think about it. In, In 20 years, I did everything from run a Teamster operation to automate the Tokyo transit system. Those are, those are two very, <laughs> very different, different skills, problems, right? Totally. Um, but you start to say, wait a minute, you know, there's a way to get to ground zero on a problem, regardless of what the problem is. And you learn that diagnostic, and then you just keep repeating it and practicing it. What's the diagnostic look like? What are some of the, th- what are, what are some of the things that people might want to... It seems like the first part of this is actually taking the time, which yep. you kind of alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. to actually look at the problem. But then when they're doing that, what are, those, what are some of the things, framework that they want to think about yeah, there? Yeah, so let's take a business problem in general. And, and I still think that one of, the, one of the best frameworks that exists is the Michael Porter framework for competitive strategy. Absolutely. Right? Um, it's a question of understanding what's going on externally, what's happening with your customers, what's happening with your competitors, what disruptive technologies mm-hmm. are out there, and asking yourself, wait a minute, you know, we can go invest another dollar in this current product because we're in love with the current product, right? And, totally. and if we can add another feature to it, boy, it'll be even better because we've talked to customers and they use it every day and they've told us to add another feature. Um, and I'll tell you a story about Quicken in its 13th version when I took it over and <laughs> went, whoa, we have that. Everybody's been in love with this product for a very long time yeah. and we had to change it radically. So I think that, you know, asking yourself those questions and then always getting them grounded in two fundamentals in the, in the customers, right? Because yeah. making sure you go deep in customers and what they're doing and always getting grounded in the economics. If the economics don't work, eventually you will not be able to change the business. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. You talked about Quicken. You came mm-hmm. in and it's 13th version. That's an, that's an iconic product. I think yeah. that's a product that most everybody listening to this is probably familiar with, if not having used. Like, what was that situation look like? You know, I uh, I left GE after 20 years, and right. um, you know, after the first bubble burst, 
uh, Intuit had called me and said, hey, we really want somebody who can come in and look at this business with fresh eyes. So I took over the QuickBooks brand, and then within about seven months, I got a call and said, hey, we want you to go look at Quicken. (laughs) And I said, you know, I've never really been a Quicken user. I've used QuickBooks before, but Mm. let me start to get into the product. And I went over and met the team and went over and met some customers. And at this point, this product was so hard to learn because it had so many pieces of functionality bolted Bolted on. on. (laughs) Exactly. And so we said, okay, this is, you know, we just released version 13 for, you know, we were designing this thing for the extremely long tail Mm -hmm. at that point. And we said, look, you know, we're in an incredibly privileged position, right? Remember our competitor was Microsoft, yeah, right? They didn't charge for money, their competing product. They just put it on for free on your desktop. Mm -hmm. And yet we somehow had built a business and charged every time, right? And we felt it was almost our ethical obligation to keep giving customers what they wanted. And yet when you talk to new customers that were going to be the future of the company, Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't use product. So we just said, okay, that's it. We're going to go back to ground zero on this. How do we get this to a point where somebody can come in and this is a friendly product that represents something where you can take control of your financial life. Because that was always the great promise. So we went back to the promise, and we just started taking pieces of functionality out, obviously redesigning UI in a massive way, right, for the simplicity. But what we wanted to make sure is it didn't feel like a bolt-on product, that all those nuts and bolts were gone, and it felt like a seamless fabric when Mm -hmm. you went in there. And it was somebody and a product, you know, that had a personality that you wanted to talk to. So that was really what we tried to do. You've said the word customers Mm -hmm. several times uh, Mm -hmm. in our conversation so far. What are the things that you should listen to your customers really closely on? And what are the things where maybe you want to diverge from your customer feedback because that that feedback might, might pull you to iterate and iterate on something that needs a bigger change? Yeah, I think it's it's especially where customers can't aren't experiencing the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, in places where customers don't know they have a problem or a desire, you can't listen to customers, right? It's absolutely, absolutely impossible. That's the Steve Jobs rule, right? <laughs> right. But in a world where they're dealing with problems, um, if you ask somebody, and many times it's in the how you ask the question and what (laughs) question you ask. So true. Right? If you ask a question that says, gee, are you satisfied with our product? The answer is always going to be yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you say, gee, would you like to have, what else would you like to see us add? They'll, boy, you're going to wind up adding more things, right? Because they want to look smart Mm -hmm. and they'll tell you, even though they won't generally use it. So I think the most important thing to do with customers, and this is something Intuit does incredibly well, is not listen to what they say, but listen to what they do. In a world where you have known needs and clear pain points, many times customers, what they say is just not reliable, but what they do is highly reliable. And I'll give you an example. When we would go into uh, a QuickBooks customer, there would be stickies all over the place, right? (laughs) Right. And most of those stickies would be about things that QuickBooks didn't touch and Mm -hmm. we never wanted to be part of. But we said, well, gee, we have all these other problems, but yet there's still challenges in QuickBooks. We didn't even have an accountant version Mm -hmm. in those days, right? We wanted to build an accountant version and make sure that 
this concept of utilizing the internet, right? Of moving <laughs> right. files so your accountant had easy access, which we thought was revolutionary. And by the way, it did turn turns out, out to be. it turns out you were right. <laughs> so, but we had all these other stickies every time we walked yeah. in, and people wouldn't tell us about those things. So finally, we started saying, well, hmm, there's all these pain points. What if we opened up the software stack, built an SDK, and really improved our APIs? and started a developer network. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge win because customers then had seamless integration to solve their other pain points. And it helped Intuit be able to expand a product portfolio many times because we yeah. knew, frankly, what was, what was the biggest pain point and how could we help the customer through deeper integration. So it was a great eye-opener for us because for a long time, we didn't see those stickies because all we did was yeah. ask questions. But then when you walked in and you said, wow, these people are organized, right? They're using QuickBooks. Yeah. Why are all these stickies around? Well, and what strikes me about that is that you didn't feel the need to solve that problem completely yourself, right? And I think that is a trap so many companies fall into is that like, oh, I see all these sticky notes. I must replicate each use case in our product and, and solve that. For folks who battle with that, what... What's some good ways of thinking about what they should own, what they should build within their own company, what they should maybe partner or, or open up on? Yeah, I, I think you really do have to ask yourself, you know, what is it that you think is a game changer for your current product? Yeah. Get very clinical about that. And also ask yourself today, what are you good at? Because totally. if it's not something, if it's too far away from your core competency, you're going to bungle it. And oh, by the way, with a big market, you know, massive uh, TAM, total available market, you know, going after that market and staying singularly focused will be something that's a journey of the next few years, right? Yeah. It's not something you do in months. So if you're going to really satisfy customers, you have to open up the ecosystem. And I think, you know, we, now we we just take for granted that ecosystems have to be open up, right? Walled yeah. gardens are no longer in existence. I mean, there's one or two living around, but that's yeah. about it. Um, but I do think it's something where you have to get very clinical about, wait a minute, we've got a big market. Are we really going to take our eye off the ball um, and, and be conservative, if you will, yeah. about you know what our customers want today and how to be revolutionary in, in what we're good at? So something that struck me about our conversation is you've been in a lot of situations where you've had to really dive in and focus on the short term and fix some problems, but also very long horizon problems, problems that you knew were going to take years and years to solve and you work towards a really long-term plan. For folks who are who are trying to plan their business, how do you, how do you think about managing the short term versus the long term and, and how does that change as your company grows and scales. Like I think today at HubSpot, for example, as we're a larger organization, it's a little bit easier to plan further out than it was maybe three, four years ago when we were you know, just trying to get the business to crank and work and do its thing. Like how does that actually work? You know, it, it is, um, it, it's painfully simple in so many ways, right? <laughs> the short term, the short term is your survival mechanism. Absolutely. And I think it's important not and to be really clear about the decisions that you're making some of which will be for financial reasons right sure. so you can survive especially if you're a small business mm -hmm. uh, some will be well we want to make this decision because we think we can build capacity for the future yeah. and so there are investment decisions and then short-term decisions to to make the financials work 
I think that's critical to keep saying, what is the balance of that? Because, and I think many entrepreneurs right now, you know, as we yeah. talk about the Silicon Valley bubble, right? Yeah. Uh, that is slowly leaking. Um, many entrepreneurs have forgotten that, wait a minute, you know, I, I can't run out of cash. Cash is always king. And so, you know, you can get to a point where you've proven unit economics and even proven early scale data mm. and say, hey, I'm going to now invest in growth. But guess what? You know, it, and we all know this. In fact, I read an article by Brian recently mm. about how cohorts begin to fall apart, right? Yeah, absolutely. When the cohort falls apart, you say, wait a minute, stop. What am I going to have to do to rebuild some of this? And sometimes you have to pull back. So I think business, many times people think, we read these articles or we read these business bios mm -hmm. and we say, oh boy, I want to be like that person. Why is it yeah. so easy for them? Well, anybody that's built a business knows it's a question of, you know, you put on the gas when you've got wind at your back and then you pull back and it's that continuous, you know, gas what break. you're trying to do. Exactly. <laughs> it's gas break, gas break. And what you're trying to do as a CEO is make sure that the organization's not feeling jerked, but they're feeling a smooth transition yeah. between the two. And frankly, that you're... I think transparent about, look, we have to do A today to yeah. be able to fund B. And that's what those are the decisions we're making. And you have to be introspective enough and frankly have the data. And yeah. that's one of the things I think that's critical, especially if you're an SMB, is to make sure that you have enough information to make that decision to say, wait a minute, now let's let off the brake a bit. So we talked a little you were talking a little bit about the short term and, and solving mm -hmm. for the the immediate revenue, immediate cash flow. It strikes me, though, there, there are difficult ch choices that a business has to face, and I'm wondering if you were ever faced with this, where maybe you have to make a decision for short-term revenue that might be against your values, might be against what the business you've built up to this period of time. Like, what choice do you make there? Is, is, it, is it okay because you've just got to keep the business going, or do you find that you really no matter the cost, kind of have to stay true to kind of what the company's about, what it's good at, what it values. Yeah. What does that look like? I would say, so there's there's a question of uh, what the company values and what the values are of the company, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think it's impossible to go against the values of the company. I think yep. that that is the thing when people see their leaders doing that, that can destroy a company. So I would set that aside and say, that's almost off limits. Yep. But boy, there are times when you have to go in and you have to say, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to make a short-term decision. Uh, I've got to do it because I'm under cash pressure or there's something else happening right now. Um, and you know, I've had to do that a lot. I mean, one of the toughest decisions that I faced is we, we knew what to do, for example, when I was at shopping.com and I ran a very early stage public company. Um, and we literally had to bolt on, and we knew it was not a good experience, but we had to bolt on some international functionality mm -hmm. um, because it was going to take us a lot of cash to rewrite, you know, the stack. And we said, boy, you know, we've got to do that. We've got to get to market. If we don't get to market, we're going to get beaten by several people. Let's figure out what we can do. And boy, it was a painful decision. <laughs> oh, and gosh, it was right. one of those things where you say, look, we know this isn't ideal, but it's something that can be done. And let's talk to our customers. Let's go out and be transparent. Mm -hmm. And boy, that was really hard, right? Because you had to be transparent with the customer that says, yes, we're first to market. And there's some things that are coming that are going to make your lives easy. 
but we're going to help you get through this. And frankly, we didn't have any more money to help them get through it. <laughs> so that meant a lot of people making sacrifice. And boy, think about this. You're, you know, you're coming in on a, a Sunday to deal with Israeli customers, right, that are yeah. working on Monday morning. And you're having to do that, make that sacrifice for a product that if it were up to par, wouldn't you wouldn't be there, right? right absolutely. So it was one of those things where people were making real contributions with their lives mm -hmm. because we couldn't get there. And so we actually, one of the things we did was we had the customers tell their stories directly to engineering as well as those people that were on the front lines. Yeah. And then a few Sundays we made the engineers come in. <laughs> well, and guess sure. what? You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how can we rethink that problem yeah. and how can we get there faster? And so we were, we were able to re-architect it within six months wow. versus multiple years and come up with a good enough product um, for the entire world and then, you know, build it out over the next year and have a much better product than we would have had if we'd solved the problem our original way. Cool. And so you were talking about shopping.com there. You, you eventually, that the business goes on to be sold to, to eBay eventually. Talk about that experience and, and that, that, <laughs> that journey. That, it's a, I think it's a one that's a wild time in the history of, like, our economy yeah. and, and everything. So I, I think people would be get, would get a kick out of it. It was a wild company. Remember, this was a company that was started over a schnitzel shop <laughs> in Herzliya in Israel okay. and uh, then moved to New York and then merged with a company called Opinions, which was sort of the oh, first. Yeah, I remember uh, right? Those, those uh, founders have gone on to, to start Nextdoor, great company. Mm -hmm. And so we merged the company. So we had both shopping and, you know, consumer reviews. And uh, boy, so talk about, you know, coming into a company that was newly public and really two cultures because the culture of the San Francisco office where we relocated everybody hadn't really been stated yet. Yeah. So it was all about, and by the way, we only had so much cash because we'd just <laughs> of gone course. public. Of course. So we had all of those challenges. And so it was, it was great because I think we were really pulling everybody together and getting very clear on what we were doing and, you know, launched international and then eBay came along. And, uh, you know, it was one of those very interesting times when we were very attractive because we had some unique technology, right? Mm -hmm. We were pioneers in machine learning. Everybody's mm -hmm. talking about machine learning and yeah. deep learning. And, but today, in those days, we were really pioneers. And uh, they were very interested in that concept. We were also quite good at performance marketing, right? Mm -hmm. This was a company that was measuring at the keyword level was not where eBay was yeah. looking, was still using efficient frontier in those days. So there was a lot of technology draw. There was also, I think, um, a hypothesis that eBay could go into new and retail in mm -hmm. a massive way. And so we spent a lot of time trying to explain the difference between an ad format and transaction platform because we felt that those two were fundamentally different and if you were going to put ads on a transaction platform, you had to be very, very clear about what the rules of the road were with sure. a community. So, you know, ultimately, I think they made the decision and to bet on the, the really big game, which was to be able to bring retail into a longer tail marketplace. You know, we felt that it was worth the money just based on the, the fundamental technology that we were bringing. Sure. Um, so it was a little bit fun when you kind of join a company <laughs> not being very clear about what the ultimate yeah. intent is. 
And so I think it was, um, you know, there was a lot of, of uh, push me, pull you, to use a Dr. Doolittle uh, mm-hmm. uh, example there. And uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I think they wound up using us for our technology. Sure. Um, and then we had an idea that said, gee, we have this ad network. Why don't we take eBay products and distribute it across the web? We have to build out some additional technology to do that. Mm-hmm. So now eBay has a, you know... Um, a very large business uh, <laughs> called the eBay Ad Network. It's yeah. called eBay Advertising, and uh, and that's the Shopping.com business. So, in the end, it was a good tale, and shopping mm-hmm. was much larger than it could have been. Yeah. But it's a little like the early days of a relationship. You know, there's a lot of dancing and a lot of uh, a lot of conversation about when you take something so different. And this is, I think, a lesson about thinking about what. What you think is adjacent on a piece of paper may not be adjacent from a customer and yeah. product standpoint, especially a technology standpoint. But um, you know, a lot of the machine learning, and frankly, we were very rapid to just take the technology we developed and put it into their performance marketing, which you know was a good deal very quickly on. So you know, at That's the awesome. end of the day, it was a nice exit for people. Uh, from the originally deal time mm-hmm. and opinions who had built, you know, really sacrificed a lot, frankly, to be able to build a company. Um, it was a nice exit for them. And I think ultimately eBay got some great technology. But boy, in between, it, was, uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't the prettiest dance yeah, always, but, fair, fair, fair but all good. But, it seems like that's a common situation when you, when you bring companies together. Though. That doesn't seem like an abnormal absolutely. story. Absolutely. It's sort of like marrying somebody that you've never, um, you've, you've only, you've never been on a date with, right? <laughs> that's and, a good analogy. You know, you have a couple of meetings with people. And then you meet with their financial people. And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, here's an offer. And you're like, wow, you know, my shareholders are going to love that offer. Yeah. And so let's talk with the employees and see if we can make that happen and, and if it's something they want to get behind. Because one of the mistakes I think that many people um, make when they're purchased is they don't spend enough time with their employees and don't get enough buy-in to make sure that they're going to be behind the the acquisition. And so we spent a great deal of time in that transition, almost a year. Wow. So I stayed at shopping for almost exactly another year after the close, which was, you know, about yeah. four months after the announcement, uh, to make sure that, that the company really was in good shape and that eBay had an asset, frankly, that they could uh, that they could really make sure that that added value for their shareholders yeah. and their their uh, their sellers as well. So we felt good about that. That's awesome. Uh, so a few few broader questions now. So you've you've worked with a bunch of folks over the years at a, bu- at a bunch mm-hmm. of different places. Who's the best leader you've worked with? And like what what makes that person so exceptional? Yeah, you know it's interesting. <laughs> there there are there are the characters like Jack Welsh. Sure. And Jack was amazing, right? He was most people don't know Jack was a chemical engineer, mm-hmm. uh, so brilliant PhD, uh, absolutely visionary in where he was going. Great with people, very mm-hmm. unique that way. Had sure. an amazing ability to manage his top people and inspire them to manage other people. Um, you know, that was a portfolio business. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd say that when you're running a portfolio, you, you really do rely very heavily on other people to run it. So to me, you know, he was a great leader, probably, you know, the greatest of my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are some people that are amazing heroes that um, a guy that I work with uh, who was, I was on the board of DirecTV before mm-hmm. we sold it to AT&T. Yep. And um, the gentleman that ran PepsiCo International and was prior to that the CFO of PepsiCo came over to run DirecTV. 
His name is Mike White. He lives on the Cape, as a matter of fact. Okay, nice. And he is the best leader I've ever worked with. He is strategic in that he spends, it's not just about somebody else thinking about a problem, right? Mm -hmm. He thinks about where's the future of the business going to be, both from a customer standpoint, what are those behaviors that are going to be important, what kinds of things are happening generationally. I mean, Mm -hmm. this guy could tell you more about how millennials consume television (laughs) than anybody in the world, right? And as a result of that, you know, I think you had a company that would have gone on for quite a Mm -hmm. while, but he said, wait a minute, I really think that this is a company that, you know, with AT&T's offer, great offer, but more importantly, it can help build the future of consuming video content. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very different, I think, approach. Also, just absolutely gifted in operations. You know, that's a hard thing. Very, very hard. You know, you don't see people that that are strategists. You know, Mike was at Bain for a while, so he had a great education there, but... You don't see people that are great at strategy and great at being able to put together and run very complex businesses. Mm. Um, You know, when you're running a consumer business that has that many moving parts um, and you're, you know, you're running thousands, tens of thousands of people in the field, uh, running complex technology, physical technology, right? Absolutely. Um, That is, that's very challenging. You know, you you have to have an understanding of that, and I think um, you know Mike made uh, lots of challenge, you know, lots of changes early on because he went out and worked in the field beside the people that did the installations, and and said, hey, you know, we have to change this game again. The strategist in him said we can use technology to transform the net promoter score of the mm-hmm. customer. And if we do that, certainly we're going to have to pull lots of operational levers to be able to fund that. But fundamentally, we have to have a great product and we have to have a great consumer experience on the ground. And that's what we're going to remake. So lots of operational changes in the four years that he, were, he was there. And yet he still found time to rebuild the culture. And he defined a leadership model that was unique to the company. Uh, He, every, you know, there was a very programmatic leadership Mm -hmm. training program that they rolled out. Because again, when you have tens of thousands of employees, it's a real scale. You have to do that. It is scale. Um, But, you know, he, the thing I admired the most is he, he, in addition to the strategy and operational skills, he would come and teach. So you might take 10 classes, but he would come and teach one. Nice. And he met everybody that went through those leadership training classes. So it was a unique balance of managing by understanding what was happening on the ground, but looking at the company externally and understanding the external context of what was happening Mm -hmm. and driving the company. But it was really masterful, I think, how he looked at the culture of the company and equipped people to have that desire for change and then drove it. So, you know, I think it's one thing to inherit a GE where people sure. are high performing. It's another thing to inherit a company where people haven't been empowered before and give them that thirst and yet ability in a very short period of time to be able to make that happen. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are great leaders that have transformed companies. And, and I have to say, you know, this is a company that when I joined the board was about a $40 stock and was sold for over $92 a share within five years. So incredible shareholder value there as a result of, you know, driving the highest net promoter score in the industry. When it came in, it was one of the lowest. 
I'm a very satisfied DirecTV customer. I, I, I very much understand that. And, and NFL season's coming up. I know. That's true. That's true. It's very exciting. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal for them. Um, let's talk, before we close it, let's talk about boards of directors. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's, it, this, I think this is something that's very opaque and confusing mm-hmm. to a lot of people, especially at small organizations, growing organizations who may have a few kind of advisors or a light advisory board. But when you really get into a board of directors, it serves a lot of, a lot of really important functions. You, I think, are one of the foremost experts, at least that I know, on the subject. So I love a little insight into what you see the function of a board actually doing for, for a company. And yeah. then maybe talk a little bit about how, as a company, how companies think about bringing on people to their board long term. Yeah, I think, you know, my philosophy about the function of a board is very much of a triad. You know, there's the fundamental governance functions you have to perform, right? Right. Um, they're required by law. They're required by the listing exchange, NYSE, NASDAQ. And you have to keep those as clean as possible because to me, what you want the organization and the leadership to focus on is the business and driving that business to be as great as it Mm -hmm. can possibly be and continuing to reinvent it so it can be great. So the governance is is something that is potentially not as exciting as some of the other things the board <laughs> sure. does, but it's absolutely necessary to, to keep things, I think, focused and, and frankly, make sure that shareholders understand very transparently how the company is run and that the, the business and the board uh, and the leadership takes it seriously that we have a commitment to shareholders, right? Yeah. So I think that's the first part of the triad. The, the second part, I think, is if, if you have a really great board and a CEO who is very much wants to learn, which I think, you know, in HubSpot, HubSpot's case, Brian is a lifelong learner. Yeah. Um, you want to tap the brains of the board, right? Mm-hmm. There are, um, you know, having had, I don't know, 15, 16 roles in my career over 35 years, there are patterns that I can recognize, right? Mm-hmm. Um, history repeats itself. It may look different, <laughs> right? right? We, you know, the 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 uh, the desktop revolution of the computer looks very different than the mobile revolution in the cloud. But you know, there are signs along the way, and I think that tapping the board for the kinds of things that they are paranoid about. Remember, they're not mm-hmm. constrained by having to run the business every day, so their minds are clean. And making sure that you're you're utilizing them in enough free form discussions is absolutely critical. Um, they won't ever solve your business problem, but they can help bring you perspective mm-hmm. that can help you free your mind a bit, as well as make sure that you know. Frankly, if you really utilize the board well, there you don't bump into as many walls. And then I think there's the third piece, and again, it these kind of build on one another in the sense that. If you trust your board to do governance and you trust them to take their advice, then you're going to trust them to put them in front of your people mm-hmm. and help you build the, co- the culture. Because if you choose great people on your board, people that are, are both understanding how to serve customers and be dedicated to customers, but at the same time scale a business and build a great business, then they should be able to help you build a culture um, that, that is great and is going to sustain lots of bumps along the way. And I think that, um, you know, an example of that is having board members uh, meet in larger groups, having board members meet with high potential people, just meeting people so that 
you can A, demystify the board, because I think that's mm-hmm. very important, right? You have Absolutely. to recognize that many times people think that boards are running the company. And, and in reality, it's very important that management is running the company and not coming to the board for, you know, general approval of operating decisions. Strategically, we have to approve the plan, yeah. and that's just a governance issue. But, you know, it's very important, I think, to think about how you put the right people on your board. Because if you're just putting a bunch of people together so they can give you the governance stamp, that's not good enough. So who are the right people? Like, how do you, how do you figure that out? I think you have to have, uh, you have to think about what is your business going to need in the next five years, and you need to assemble skills associated with those challenges. Then you have to pick a group, among a group, that is going to fit with you culturally, right? Because mm-hmm. without that, you know, you're going to have unnecessary tension and you're not going to be able to fulfill those top two tiers of the triad right the thought leadership and the cultural leadership which i think a board can provide but i think it's really important and we do this in every one of the roles we just did this in in filling the role um when stacy stepped off the board some of the venture Mm -hmm. capital group and we brought on uh, julie horrendon because we didn't have a strong marketing and a strong internationalization marketing skill set, yeah. right? Yeah. So we said, well, gee, over the next five years, we're going to need some of these skills. Which ones do we bring in? And so I think many times the big downfall, the big watch out, I would say for most people, if they're building a board, and many SMBs have advisory boards, right, is that they fall in love with the person or they fall in love with the persona, right? I call yeah. it the glitterati personality, <laughs> yeah. right? And you see this in many boards. Oh, I mean, there, there are so many boards right now in Silicon Valley where you've got a great government official or you've got somebody that's from the entertainment industry. Certainly that brings you a lot of press, but that's not going to necessarily bring you the critical thinking that you need in the boardroom. Yeah. And so I think you have to push yourself outside your comfort zone and really define the future and then really work with somebody that does these searches. I mean, many times you can get things through networks, but I think you have to make sure you're not doing that all the time. Maybe you do it 20% of the time or 30%, mm-hmm. but 70 to 80% of the time you have to reach out into that zone that you're not comfortable with and grab people that are illogical or otherwise you're going to have group think. And that's where yeah. I think many people just, you know, they think about, wow, I really met this person. They were great. They're really smart. And, you know, there are a lot of great, smart people in the world. That's not what you need for the next five years. So be strategic about that. Awesome. Before I let you go, what is, uh, what's one thing that somebody who is listening today, running a company, running a team, what's, what's one piece of advice you would give them to kind of change, to improve what they're doing, to, to think about what they're doing a little bit differently? Yeah, you know, I think if you, if you walk in to the office every day, right, mm-hmm. there's always a fatigue factor there. Sure. And so my advice to the entrepreneur would be make sure, because you're doing so much heavy lifting every day, that you take enough time with yourself and your team to step back from the picture and say, okay, this is where we've been. What do we want to change about that? And make sure that your entire organization, and that might be three people, it might be seven people, it might be 70, um, your entire organization understands strategically where you're going so that they can understand where they fit in to that strategic vision and how what they're working on will Mm -hmm. make a difference every day. If you take that time and then refresh that connection, make the connection early on and continue to refresh it, it brings up the energy of the organization so their performance is so much higher 
and you have more time to think and make sure that you can take care of yourself. You know, I worry about the entrepreneur when I hear, hey, I'm not working out and I have no time to think and I'm just running as hard as I can, yeah. you know, and it's before I know it, I look up and it's 930 and boy, I've got to go home, right? Yeah. So that's the kind of thing where even if you have a couple of people and people aren't giving you that space as a leader, you need to, to either change the people, you know, by bringing them together and spending time with them or change out the people. Perfect. That's awesome advice. Thanks yeah. for joining us today, Lori. My pleasure. Thanks, Kip. to this podcast and you can be featured in an episode if you refer five friends to subscribe to the show you get a shout out in our weekly email newsletter refer 10 i'll give you a shout out on our next episode 20 you get a featured segment on the next episode and if you refer a hundred friends you get the entire episode to yourself that's right a hundred referrals and you become the guest tell them to subscribe to the show in their favorite podcast app, then head over to bit.ly slash TGS refer a friend to give you credit for the referral.